Hello, um, my name is Marla and I'm a partner here at Mercy View. I'll be reading from Exodus 20, verses eight through 11. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all of your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is in within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. This is the word of the Lord. All right, note to future self. Don't turn your microphone on before you walk in front of those speakers. I'm sorry to all of your ears. Most of you, I'm glad you're here with us tonight. Um, if I haven't met you yet, my name's Trey. I am uh, actually, as of this week, on staff here at Mercy View. Um, and so uh, excited. Thank you. Um, excited about that. Excited more to uh, get to open God's Word with you guys tonight. Um, if you've been with us since the start of May, um, then you might remember that we're in a series through uh, the Ten Commandments. Um, here's the big idea that we've been trying to get underneath throughout this series, um, and it's that true freedom comes is found in submission to God, not in being self-autonomous, not in having um, our own self-interest filled. Like in other words, what makes you really free is not the ability to do whatever you want, whenever you want, wherever you want, with whoever you want, But true freedom comes from recognizing that God has a claim on your life because he made you. Now for us, this kind of poses a bit of a problem over time because we live in a culture that actually is communicating the exact opposite. It's communicating to us that um, that we have this notion that you and I belong to ourselves that we're self-autonomous, we're self-actualizing, we're self-caring, self-loving people who answer only to what makes us our true, authentic self. I'm going to pause for a second. Can we turn the game down like a lot? <laughs> I'm like echoing bad up here, bro. Um, and so this creates a problem because we come up against these vast swaths of biblical truth that tells us that in actuality... God has a claim on our lives and how we go about living our lives. And so we're faced with a choice. Do we believe what God has said? Do we believe that he has a claim? Or do we continue to trust ourselves to determine how our lives would work best? I think in his book, uh, You Are uh, you are not your own. Alan Noble does a really good job giving us a helpful, helpful perspective on this problem. He says, if I am my own and I belong to myself, then I'm also responsible for determining right and wrong for myself. And in such a society, the basis of our moral positions is ultimately based on personal preference or deep feeling on something internal or private. And he goes on to elaborate in another spot in that same chapter that the greatest difficulties we face in a society where we bought into this cultural lie that we belong to ourselves, 
and that we determine the course of our life and our own moral horizons, our moral horizons, the the things that we conceive of being ethical, the things we can conceive of being uh, right and good, they can only be chosen. They can never be given to us. And so when we look at God's law here in the Ten Commandments, we're confronted with the fact that God, in giving us the law, is making a claim on each of our lives through his word. And we saw back when we were in uh, the first part of our Roman series that this is a good law, right? Like we, we, we kind of sometimes in, especially our circles here, we, we kind of butt up against the law and we go, no, it's, it's grace, not law. And what scripture shows us is that it's grace that gives us the freedom to actually obey God and live out what he's called us to. And so what we see God saying throughout scripture to us and here in the Ten Commandments is that freedom comes not through self-belonging, but through right belonging. Through knowing and trusting that you don't have the ultimate claim on your own life. That's the first question and answer in the Heidelberg Catechism. Like we've, we've been asking and answering this question for a long time. Now this was written in 1563. And it asked this question, what is your only comfort, or we could say, what is your only hope in life and in death? Here's the answer. That I, with body and soul, both in life and death, am not my own, but belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. You don't have ownership of your life, and there's hope in that. And this is true for each and every one of us. But regardless of whether you're here and you're a Christian or not, submitted to the rule and reign of Jesus or not, or you're just here exploring Christianity, as your creator, God has a claim on your life. But if you're here and you're a believer tonight, like God has a double claim on you because he doesn't just have a claim on you as your creator. No, if, if you're saying that I've trusted in Jesus for the forgiveness of my sins and I've given my life to him, he has a claim on your life because he made you and he's redeemed and saved you. And so with the whole Ten Commandments from, hey, you should have no other gods before me, to stop coveting your neighbor's stuff. What they're trying to get underneath and what they're trying to show us, what God is saying is that this is my world and it functions best when you live in it under the rules and rubrics that I've set up. And I think out of all the commandments that we're going to look at, the fourth commandment is, is unique in the way that it begins to push underneath and press underneath our sense of self autonomy and our sense of self-sufficiency. And this one hit home for me over the last few weeks as I've been kind of preparing for this and meditating on what it means to keep the Sabbath, what it means to remember it. I'm struck by my own overwhelming forgetfulness because I, I at times realize that I've bought into this lie that I can be self-sufficient. And, and I think tonight, as we explore this and we look at this, we, you might find yourself there as well. That's what we're going to see tonight, that the command to remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy, it's meant to lead us toward a recognition of who we are in relation to who God is and the way that it works out in the rhythms of our day-to-day lives. 
And so here's the roadmap for where we're going. This is what we're going to look at tonight. Uh, We need to get a good definition of what the Sabbath is and what it means and what it means to remember and keep it. And then once we have that, we're just going to look at one big outworking of this, this Sabbath command, this Sabbath principle in our lives together, in the rhythms and modes of, of how we live our life. And so what does it mean to remember the Sabbath? Look with me at uh, verse 8 there in Exodus 20. It says, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. So something that we got to keep in top of mind throughout the series, and as we look at this command today, is that as Christians, all of the law has been transformed by the work of Jesus Christ. Like if you remember in Matthew 5, when he's talking to the scribes and the Pharisees, he says, hey, don't think that I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. I've come to fulfill them. Like none of that's going to pass away. What Christ does is he comes and he brings the fulfillment. He brings the true picture of what it looks like to obey God and follow him. And particularly throughout the history of the church, everyone has agreed that whatever ethical commands, whatever uh, other things have, have passed away, like whatever aspects of the law we don't keep today, whether it's ceremonial things or dietary restrictions, what is morally applicable to all people at all times are the 10 words found here in Exodus 20. In these 10 commandments, God is laying out what it looks like to live a moral, ethical life according to his standard. And so Kevin DeYoung in his book on the Ten Commandments says, really helpfully, I think, that as we look at the Ten Commandments and strip away the cultural context and the case law, the main takeaway from the Mosaic Sabbath is that we must rest from our labors and trust in God. This is the principle fulfilled in Christ. Jesus showed us the fullest, deepest meaning of the Sabbath. Namely, that we should trust God to be our provider, sustainer, deliverer, and savior. And so we see Jesus transforms the Sabbath so that what's in focus isn't what you can't or shouldn't be doing on this holy day, but rather what you should do. Namely, you should trust God. You should trust God with all your heart, soul, mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Right? Jesus sums up the whole law and prophets in those two things. And we see this actually play out in Jesus' life and ministry. Like one of the things that we see on repeat throughout the Gospels is the number of times that Jesus, when interacting with the Pharisees and interacting with the other religious leaders of the day, he's going to come into conflict, conflict with them on the Sabbath. And so you have the day that he and the disciples, they're walking on the Sabbath, like maybe to synagogue, maybe from synagogue, and, and as they're walking... The disciples are plucking heads of grain and they're rubbing them in their hand and they're, they're eating the grain. And some of the Pharisees see this and they're like, like, do you not teach your followers to obey the Sabbath? And Jesus responds to him. He says, listen, the Sabbath was made for man. These dudes are hungry. Like, they're going to eat some bread like it's going to be fine. 
He's saying you're, you're missing the point of the command not to work. You're missing the forest for the trees. Or you have the Sabbath day when Jesus, he heals the woman who had been disabled for 18 years by some kind of evil spirit. It's on a Sabbath day. It's in the synagogue. She comes, she's healed. And when this happens, the Pharisees' response was not, wow. Like this woman that has been unable to stand upright for the last 18 years, she's completely whole in front of me right now. Like, I don't know what this guy is, but there's something about him. No, his response is to literally say, there are six days a week when you can be healed. Come and be healed on one of those, not on the Sabbath. And I love Jesus' response because you can just hear the indignation in his voice as he just drops this little truth hammer on this guy's head. And he goes, you hypocrite. Like, do not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or donkey from the manger and lead it away to water? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? To Sabbath means to cease or to rest. And what God's commanding and what Jesus shows us is that the ceasing and resting is from striving. And so God is commanding that you and I rest from our work and we trust him. And so why do we have this specific day set aside for trusting God through rest? Well, we see in the last part of the text in verse 11 that God roots the command in his own pattern, in his own rhythm in creation. It says, for in six days the Lord made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. God, in his work of creating the universe, like the universe, like the whole thing, right? He set up this principle of work and rest. And he's pointing back to Genesis 2 here, where after six days of making everything that is, God looks at his very good creation, and intentionally we see that he rested. And the word for rested there is the exact same word in Exodus 20 that we have for Sabbath. God rested. He ceased from his work. Why? It wasn't because he needed to stop or take a break. Like Isaiah 40 tells us that God doesn't faint or grow weary. He doesn't get tired. And so if he doesn't need rest, why did he rest? And I think by framing the fourth commandment as one of remembrance, what God is showing us here in Exodus 20:11 is that he rested because he knew that we, as finite, frail creatures, we needed to be reminded that we had to rest because though we are finite and though we are frail, we have this great propensity for thinking that we're not. For thinking that we could just go and go and go and never stop. God rested so that he could invite us into rest with him. He made us in his image, but in as much as we're like him, we are not him. 
And so the Sabbath is God's way of reminding us that we are not all-powerful. That we are not able to do anything that we want. Like it's reminding us that we are not all-knowing. That we don't know what tomorrow is going to bring. We don't know what we're going to need this next week. We're not sufficient on our own. And so God in his mercy, he commands us to slow down and to rest. And so that's why Jesus is going to intentionally press on the the man-made Sabbath traditions throughout the Gospels. And he's going to press the religious leaders of his day. Because what they were doing was the antithesis of what the Sabbath command was for. Like all of these different rules around the Sabbath about what could and couldn't be done. They were in place for really good intentioned purposes. Like they were there because the goal was to help people not get close to actually breaking the Sabbath command. And in doing so, they're placing a burden on people that Jesus is like, this, this isn't a burden that anyone can bear. You're going to break it. On a day that I've set aside for you to be freed from your bonds, to have your burdens lifted, you're placing burdens on people that they can't bear on their own. And here's something that I imagine many of us, if not most of us in the room tonight, are are prone to do. It's what I meant earlier when I said the fourth commandment's going to press on this like cultural bent inside of us toward autonomy and self-worship. Like you and I live in a culture that prioritizes work and efficiency and productivity. At all cost. And this is particularly true, I think, in, in my generation, which is I, I think probably the for the most part, most of us in the room tonight. Like, like most of us in the room fall into like that millennial generation and, and we're working our jobs or we're, we're raising our families and we're doing all of these things right now. And the work just never stops. Like for the last like four years, like I, I've been working in a place where just I'm constantly surrounded by other people around my age. And what I've noticed is that literally the work never stops. Like everyone that I have worked with has, has in some way, shape, or form found that it is just impossible to stop doing their job. Like they always talk when they come back from like the weekend, like, well, yeah, I answered this email then, I did this here. And I, I, I think to myself, like, man, I, I hope that I don't do that. And I realize that there have been so many times, like 11 o'clock on a Saturday night, I'm sitting watching TV and like the impulse inside of me to just grab my phone and check the work email like that stuff can wait until Sunday, like, or Monday. <laughs> that stuff can wait until the, the week gets started again, right? That's the internalized that. <laughs> and what this addiction to work has done is it's lead to what could easily be called like an epidemic of burnout in our culture. Like everywhere you look, people are just burned out and they're tired. And this all happened and was like, like just epically on the rise way before COVID broke down all the barriers of work and home and the way that life is meant to actually be set up and these rhythms that we should have. There was an article in BuzzFeed back in 2019 uh, by columnist Ann Helen Peterson 
Um, and, and she wrote, after making these observations about the way that millennials, and that's why I mentioned us a minute ago, are totally paralyzed, many of us are, in the face of what to a lot of folks look like really small daily tasks. And she asked this question, why can't I get all the mundane stuff I need to get done, done? It's because I'm burned out. And why am I burned out? Because I've internalized the idea that I should be working all the time. Why have I internalized that idea? Because everything and everyone in my life has reinforced it explicitly and implicitly since I was young. Life has always been hard, but many of us are unequipped to deal with the particular ways in which it's become hard for us. And in the book I mentioned earlier by Alan Noble, he, he draws out from this article that millennials, we, we have, in addition to this, this suffering from workaholism that leads to burnout, we have this other problem that even when we're not working, we're busy optimizing ourselves. That we're busy working on ourselves so that we can have what we think is going to be a fuller, more satisfying life. And this pattern... This way of living is slowly driving us deeper and deeper into despair and into this chaotic scene that is our life comes the command to remember the Sabbath. What we have to see is that God is prescribing far more than just taking a day off. Like to participate in the Sabbath rest commanded here is to participate in restful worship. Because the Sabbath is meant to get your eyes off of you and onto God. Off of your feeble attempts at being sufficient on your own and into this state of dependence on Christ. As Christians, when we get this right, what we're doing is we're choosing to say that we belong to God. That He gets to make the claim, on my time, how I'm going to live my life. What that means is that I can be intentional to take one day out of seven to lean into and trust that he's going to be my provider and my sustainer, physically, financially, relationally, because in Christ, like what he's already provided me there is far more difficult than him taking care of work or him taking care of my health or him taking care of, of what bills are going to get paid. I can trust God and rest because in Christ he's already provided me salvation and sustains me as I seek to follow him I love how Jim Wilkin uh, gets at this in her book 10 words to live by she says true Sabbath rest is set apart as holy it's intended for worship as such for as much as for well-being the fourth word does more than tell us to relax Sabbath rest is distinct from idleness and different from simply having gotten enough sleep. It's more than the deliberate cessation of work for the purpose of decompressing. Sabbath is the deliberate cessation of any activity that might reinforce my belief in my own self-sufficiency. To rest, to Sabbath, is to make war on that lie that we have believed that we are our own and belong to ourselves, and that we're sufficient enough for that task. In the second century uh, Roman Empire, there was a Caesar by the name of Marcus Aurelius. Um, there's a story about him uh, that, that goes like this. Um, he, he was 
by Roman standards, a pretty good emperor. Like, I mean, it's a low bar, but he was, he was a good emperor. And people liked him. And, uh, and, and as he would go around into the city, he had had a servant who had one job. He would walk with him anywhere that he went. And anytime someone would praise him or tell him how good he was or how great he was, the servant was supposed to come and whisper into his ear, you're just a man. Remember, you're just a man. Like in a time when the emperor was worshipped as God, this guy had the sense enough to know that even if everyone else believed it, he couldn't actually believe it himself and still get stuff done. And so he had a servant remind him of his humanity. And when we think about what it means to remember the Sabbath, like where this command kind of falls in our day to day, I think that's a good example of how it functions for us. It's in our ear whispering, you're only human. Like week in and week out when we come into this place, it's this reminder that attempting to live as we are like all on our own and all sufficient, it's going to leave us burned out, depressed, and crushed under the weight of being our own God. Remembering the Sabbath is fundamentally remembering our humanity. And it's recognizing that in that, we are dependent on God. It's rejecting the lie of the autonomous self and any kind of independence that we think we can have from God's claim on us. So that's what it means to keep the Sabbath. That's what the Sabbath command is. Now, how do we live this out? Like, what's this look like day to day for us? If we go back to our text and what God roots the Sabbath command in, his ceasing to work on the last day of the the creation week, I mean, it it kind of would make sense that we would actually observe that like on Saturday, right? Like the the last day of the week and and for like the the Jewish people and for uh, Seventh-day Adventists today, like that's when folks observe the Sabbath. But In the church, in in Christian history, Sunday has been the day that we've celebrated the Sabbath, that we've, we've observed it, we've remembered it. And so why is that? Like, should we actually observe it on Saturday or or why would Sunday make sense? And and I'm going to argue that actually, like, it makes sense for us to worship on Sunday and for Sunday to be the day that we Sabbath for a couple of reasons. First from scripture, Paul says in Colossians 2, 16 through 17, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to festival or new moon or Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. And then in Romans 14, 5, he says, One person esteems one day is better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. This is Paul, who before his conversion, like, was the self-proclaimed Hebrew of Hebrews. He is making the case that quibbling over the day of the week that we observe the fourth commandment is missing the point. These are the shadow. Christ is the substance. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. And so if you're attempting to take notes this evening, you could mark this down as my second point. The, the way we put keeping the Sabbath command in practice 
is by ordering our life around restful worship. Which Paul says, when we observe the Sabbath, we honor the Lord. Now here's the argument I'm going to make for us who are a part of Mercy View. If the way we obey the command to keep the Sabbath is by ordering our lives around restful worship, then for us, that means Sunday at 5 p.m., that's the climax, that's the apex of our Sabbath-keeping day, of our day of rest. Because that's when we gather. That's when we come together for worship as the body of Christ. And corporately, we point our hearts toward worshiping God, confessing sin, resting in our pardon through the finished work of Jesus, having our hearts illuminated and empowered by the Holy Spirit to walk out of here on Sunday evening and step back into the chaos of our lives on Monday, knowing that Christ is enough. So Sunday happens to be the day that throughout church history, in large part because of the fact that the the Christians celebrated this as the Lord's Day, that we look to it as the Sabbath because this was the day that Jesus rose from the dead. And so observing the command toward restful worship on the day when Christ, the substance, rose and put the shadow, the old covenant, out of business just kind of seemed appropriate. And so practically, what is it that we do? That we know that we are to order our lives around restful worship. We're going to do that on Sunday because that's the day that we come together to worship together So practically, what does that look like for us? And and there's three things um, that uh, Kevin DeYoung writes in his book on the Ten Commandments that I thought were really helpful. And so I'm just going to take those. We're just going to look at those. They're not mine. They're not original to me. They're from him. And I think they're really helpful. The first thing that he says is that we set aside one day in seven for corporate worship. I know we just talked about that, but it bears repeating. Because as he elaborates, I think he's on to something. As he goes into depth about what it means, I think it's something that for many of us right now, this isn't a problem, but it's looming on the horizon. We have like 100 partners and 75 kids, and most of them are under the age of eight. And so there's something on the horizon that we need to be aware of if we are going to show our kids what it means to honor the Lord with the way that we order the rhythms of our life. And so this is what he says. Are we teaching our kids that Sunday is the day we go to church or the day we try to squeeze church in? We may say that Jesus is Lord, but we end up showing that soccer is the real king. Too many of us see corporate worship as a good thing to do if the weather's nice, but not too nice. If the football game is uninteresting and the sports practice doesn't interfere, or if I'm just not too tired. Sound a little harsh? kind of is and it's true and i'm really glad i'm preaching this in june not in january because like playoffs but what does our language around our actions on and our attitude towards setting aside sunday for corporate worship and restful worship throughout the day say about us and what's it saying to our children because i'm telling you they're paying attention They know what mom and dad think is important. They know what they value. 
And it shows us who we think we belong to. Do we belong to us or do we belong to Christ? They're going to prioritize what you prioritize. What are you saying with the rhythm of your life? Are you saying that you prioritize worshiping God with the people of God and that it matters or it doesn't? Like, I get it. Like, five o'clock is hard. And when you got little kids that need to eat and then they have bedtimes they need to get to and school's happening the next day, like, it's hard. And so's 10 o'clock. Like, 10 o'clock in the morning is just as hard because nap time is right around the corner. Like, it doesn't matter when we meet. It doesn't matter what time it is. There's something inside of us that wants to tell us that we belong to ourselves. And this command is pushing against that. And it's saying, no. No, you belong to God. You belong to me. And I'm asking for one in seven. I could ask for six out of seven. And I'm asking for one. What are we prioritizing? And this isn't about getting like numbers up on Sunday night. This is about looking at the command in the text and realizing that God has said, this is where we'll find life. For those of us who aren't parents, like what does ordering your life, the way that you order it, say about your own heart? Are you structuring your week and weekend so that each week Sunday can become a day of restful worship. And maybe you feel like you can't because work just never seems to stop. And I get that. Like I get that it seems endless, especially if you're like salaried or your contract, like it does in a sense never stop. But how much of it is never stopping because you're actually breaking the eighth commandment throughout the week? You're stealing time from your boss as you're spending a little bit too much time on Facebook or a little bit too much time at lunch. Like, I'm guilty of having done that and rushing at the end of the week and rushing on the weekend and feeling as if I just don't have enough time in the week to get things done. And the way that we order our life says a lot about who we think owns our life. All right, here's the second principle. We ought to trust Christ enough to stop and rest. This is one we got to be really careful with because it's one of those statements that can take you into a ditch really, really fast. And one of the things that I've loved and I've learned really well from Ryan over the last few years has been that to say, when we look at anything that God tells us to do, well, just fill in the blank, is extremely unfruitful and always unhelpful. Like looking at something hard, like remembering the Sabbath and saying just fill in the blank is not helping anyone. And so when he says we ought to trust Christ enough to stop and rest, like we got to be careful that we don't just make that a, well, just trust Jesus and stop working. I don't know about you, but one of the reasons that I resonate with the article about millennials not being able to get mundane things done that I read earlier is because at 10 p.m. last night, the dishes in the dishwasher were clean and the sink was full. And there is literally right now on my couch a pile of laundry that could have covered both of my children. It would take us a week to find them. But that's just my life right now. And I feel like I can never get it done. And what does that say when in feeling like I can't get it done and that anxiety that it gives me about the way that I'm trusting Christ, 
That's just part of the housework. It's just part of the things in my day and in my time. And none of that has anything to do with my actual work. And it all creates this feeling that if I was to stop for one day and truly rest, things would burn to the ground. I know I'm not the only one whose life looks like that, at least somewhat. Maybe you got your dishes done. It reveals so much of my heart, my lack of trust in God's faithfulness to sustain me. And the way that we stop long enough to trust Christ is recognizing that he has asked us to order our life around regular rhythms of toil and rest, work and worship, that due time is allotted to the things that we need to do so that we can master our time and it doesn't master us. I summed up, stopping and trusting Christ enough to rest requires hard work on Monday through Saturday. And what's promised is when we commit to giving God the day that he asks of us, what we'll truly find is the rest that we so desperately need. And what does Jesus say? He says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy burdened, and I'll give you rest. And it's not easy. We can't just do it. But how many of us haven't even tried? What your Sunday looks like may largely depend on what your Saturday looks like. But maybe instead of spending the last few waking hours on the couch, you start to prep the things that tend to make life a little bit more difficult on Sunday so that you can enjoy restful worship with your family, with the people of God. Maybe you put your phone away so that you aren't tempted to hit refresh on Gmail 10 times because you know that it can wait till tomorrow. All right, here's the third last principle. I'm going to wrap it up here. We keep the fourth commandment by resting in the finished work of Christ. You know what the Pharisees kept missing every time they had an interaction with Jesus on the Sabbath? They missed him. He's the substance. He's the one that fulfills the law. And they missed him and the reality that he is the point of the Sabbath command. I didn't use this example earlier, but the lame man by the pool that Jesus tells to pick up his mat and walk on the Sabbath because his heart has found rest in him, like his legs were given strength. But it wasn't just his legs, it was his heart. He found rest. The woman with the disabling spirit could stand up straight and rejoice because what Jesus gave her was far more than a healed body. The disciples could pluck grain from the fields because as they walked on the Sabbath with Jesus, they were enjoying the bread of life, the fountain of living water. As they looked to him and trusted him, their hearts found rest. And what the Pharisees saw was people whose disregard for tradition was going to lead them into breaking the command to rest, and they missed the forest for the trees. And every time what Jesus showed was that the tradition, well-intentioned as it may have been, it did nothing but place a burden on God's people. Yet Jesus said, I have a better burden. It's easy and it's light. Come to me. Come to me. I will give you the rest you desire. Listen, we're never going to get this perfect, not even close, to half the time. 
And that's why our only hope is found in Jesus and resting in his perfect obedience. You are going to be inconsistent. My parents hear me. You're going to be inconsistent. Your kids are going to see it. And there's grace for you. We trust Jesus that he has completed his work for us. And again and again, we come into this place and we restfully worship. And as we come into this place, as as we look at what we're about to do here in just a moment, with the bread and the cup, we're reminded that it's finished and our striving is over and we can rest in him. God is inviting you to remember and rest in what Jesus has already accomplished. The command to remember the Sabbath is not meant to be a burden. It relieves our burden of self-sufficiency when we recognize that true freedom comes from ordering our lives around worship of and rest in Jesus Christ, the Lord of the Sabbath. So maybe you're here tonight, you're feeling all the weight of the running and all of your striving. If there's rest for you, like it's not found in the power of self-improvement or self-care or self-autonomy. It's found in joyful submission to the sufficiency of the rightful king of your life. Remember, you're only human. And if that's you and you aren't a Christian, but you're tired of carrying the weight of being your own and belonging to yourself, like during our time of communion, come find me. I'm going to be standing like right over here. I'd love to pray with you. I'd love to talk with you. You can find John, tall guy with no hair, or Ryan, the guy who's going to be leading communion. Like, we'd love to pray with you. Believer, feeling much the same, though you have known the truth, that you're not your own, but belong to God, and you've bought into the lie of self-sufficiency, come to the table tonight and taste and see that the Lord is good and that there's rest for you. Let's pray.